we hold hope and lament together because there's so much suffering in the world and we we are so interconnected on this planet that how can we not acknowledge the suffering of the world whether it's the planet or people in Turkey and Syria and you know all over the globe um, so there's that tension of lamenting for destruction and devastation and suffering and holding hope that there can be renewal and can be changes and can be life that is rich and full, even amidst all that. You've tuned in to How It Looks From Here, Life in the Time of Climate Change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspiration for making our way forward together. Today I'm speaking with Allison Cunningham, an activist and public leader in New Haven, Connecticut. Currently, Allison serves as the Director of Professional Formation for Yale University's Divinity School. Prior to this position, she spent most of two decades as Chief Executive Officer for Columbus House, also in New Haven and a nonprofit devoted to providing homes and shelter for people who need them. In our conversation, Allison and I dig deep into questions of housing, public policy, climate challenges, and the role of spirituality in response. Good morning, Allison Cunningham. Hi, Mary Claire. This will be an interesting conversation for us, won't it? Yeah, I think it will. You were just saying that, that we keep finding our way back to each other. Um, and for me, I will say that I keep learning more about how the world can look uh, from our conversations. So that's how I'd like to start this morning. Um, how, it, how today, uh, from where you sit in your life, how would you say the world looks to you? Oh gosh, there's this mixture of um, really frightening and really hopeful. I was thinking about this conversation when I got dressed this morning, and um, it's New England where I am. It's February the 20th, and it's going to be 60 degrees out. And I had to go to the to my health plan to pick up allergy support because things are budding out and blooming at this point in February when it should be in the 30s and it's going to be 60. Last week it was 70. And so that's the frightening part. And, there, you know, we'll talk about that a lot more. Um, but the hopeful part is I'm in this place where I'm with a bunch of young people at the Divinity School who want to do something about it. And thank goodness they do, because we need them to have that kind of commitment where they can leave this place and really put their skills to addressing this crisis that we're in the middle of. Well, let's follow up on that. Uh, since 2019, you've been at Yale Divinity School as the Director of Professional Formation. 
Uh, you're also a graduate of the Divinity School in 84, I think. Yeah. Um, so so what what are you hearing? What's involved in your current role, and what are you seeing related to the environment in uh, your students' and graduates' nonprofit applications of religion and spirituality? So my job is to um, work with students to connect them to internships while they're here. Um, certain students have, they are required to do an internship. And so I've had a number of them come to me wanting to do something that's involved with environmental justice and how they see that is, you know, everybody's different and they're all, they all want to do different things. And so um, last summer I had a student go work for a group called BTS, which is up in Portland, Maine. It once was Bangor Theological Seminary. They've kind of held on to the BTS, although it's not the seminary anymore. But yeah. they are a group that addresses kind of this need to both lament and celebrate our climate and environment. And so they host different seminars, webinars, gatherings for people of faith to come together and learn how to do that so that they can go back and do that in their congregations. And it's both it's both a lament and a celebration of the earth and who we are in relationship to the earth. And so he wanted to go work for them to understand how to do that. There's another student, interestingly, um, who uh, did an internship last summer, I think, um, with a group addressing food insecurity up in Vermont. And she's gotten very interested in birding and the impact that our changing environment has on birds. And she wants to make that part of her ministry. How is she going to do that? I have no idea. But she's going to figure it out because that's what's important to her as she looks out to see, oh my goodness, what's happening in, in the environment and in the world around us. So they're creative and you know, passionate and so desperate to do something. Well, so from your position, what do you find yourself doing to help? I mean, I hear two things in these two stories that I think are probably linked, and I'm curious to hear what you'd say. Um, one of them is that it is one of the lessons of our time, it seems, is that it's imperative to hold grief in an open palm at the same time as we hold creativity in action. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that it may seem that there are like birds and spiritual guidance. How do those two go together? But that in fact, with this open palm kind of approach to the world, they in fact can. How do you interact with your students? What, and what do you say to yourself about these things? No, I think that's right. It's it's this tension that we find, and haven't we had this tension throughout <laughs> throughout history that we hold those things, we hold hope and lament together because there's so much suffering in the world, and we, at least I find myself holding those two things together all the time. We are so interconnected on this planet that how can we not acknowledge the suffering of the world, whether it's the planet or people in Turkey and Syria and, you know, all over the globe. 
um, so there's that tension of lamenting for destruction and devastation and suffering and holding hope that there can be renewal and can be changes and right. can be life that is rich and full, even amidst all that. Well, I know that before you came to Yale for most of 20 years, I think about 17 years, you were the director of Columbus House, um, and that that is a place that is a nonprofit that helps to provide homes for people who don't have houses. So, so th that seems to bridge into what you just said. Can you complete that bridge? It's not that different. Um, you know, people would show up at the doors of Columbus House needing overnight shelter. Um, which we provided for a hundred people every night, and and that despair was real. Whether it was a woman who was desperately trying to get away from her John, or you know a guy just coming out of prison who got dumped on our doorsteps in his sweats that he left prison with, with fifty cents in his pocket, because you know they don't equip people to leave prison with any real <laughs> anything real. And it's, that's hard. That's, it, you know, there are impossible odds there of I'll never get a job. I can't find a place to live because nobody's going to rent to me because I have a record. Um, you know, it's just heaped on. The, the drama and the struggles are just heaped on and heaped on. And so our work there was to <laughs> really figure out how to hold out hope for people um, and to help them yes get out of homelessness and find a place to live and then and work on work on the employment side and the recovery side and whatever else they wanted to work on but let's first get people off the streets and into some housing that's not a shelter yeah um, and part of that work was about policy change, just like it is with the environmental work that we need to do. We can't, I can't just, you know, put my food in the compost bin and think I'm doing something that's going to save the planet. I mean, we've got to do some hard, hard, hard work on policy change in this country if, if we're going to survive. And that's what we did at Columbus House. If people are going to survive, we better do some hard work around policy change so that people can flourish um, and not get stuck in that rut of homelessness. And so um, in that, I'd, I'd like to hear you say a little bit more about what you saw as the way that climate and certainly environment, you saw you were, went through the COVID bit with those folks. In fact, it seems like you'd just taken the position at Yale Divinity School when the mayor of New Haven asked if you'd come back and and help out during the the beginning, probably the thick of the, the COVID crisis. So, I mean, arguably COVID could be seen as, as an environmental um, side effect. 
Um, but if that's so or not, you also, I'm sure, have seen climate change and the impact on people who are without homes. Um, yeah. What, what did you see, and what kind of policy stuff did you find yourself involved in? So if you look at L.A., you can't walk down the street in L.A. without seeing two or three or five or a hundred tents set up everywhere in the city. It's no longer just on Skid Row, but it's everywhere in the city. New Haven is tiny, tiny compared to L.A., but we have a whole crew of people that prefer to sleep in tents along um, the West River, which is obviously on the west side of town, not far from the shelter, Columbus House. Um, and it's true in every city. Um, in Florida, for example, when people get let out of prison, oftentimes they can't get into shelter, and so there's a whole section of town, I think it was in Miami, that is simply people that are let out of prison and they're sleeping under the overpasses, and there are you know, hundreds of people there. So wasn't it recently that California was devastated by massive floods, and L.A. was not immune to that. And so where did all those, what happened? And there's only this little bit of news about, oh, my goodness, and yes, we have to worry about people who live on the streets during these floods. Tiny, 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 tiny. How many lives were lost? Does anybody count? Um, here, it's always been about the cold weather. And um, when we get below... Uh, 15, 20 degrees at night, then there's cold weather protocol, which means that um, we just let everybody into the shelter. There's no limit. You know, you open your doors and you let them sleep wherever. You sit them in the dining room. It doesn't matter. Just get them in out of the cold if people will come in. And it used to be that the police would go and pick up people to bring them in because they were really in danger of dying um, with you know six feet of snow coming and sub-zero temperatures. Now it's about the cold and the heat. You know it's 102 out. What do we do? So you know the, here's the impact on on all of us. Um, it's just harder. It's you know it's harder. It's just harder. It's just so much harder. Yeah. So policy policy is really important. And in, in that world, the issues of policy were so much around afford the development of affordable housing. Um, I live in New Haven. It's fairly progressive. Um, a big academic institution sits in the heart of this city, and so there's it has a little bit of a liberal bent here. The state is pretty liberal, and there was a time, there was a point in time in the 90s and early 2000s where we had the path to developing deeply affordable housing for people. We had reached some really unique collaborations across state agencies that made it just a little bit easier for us as homeless service providers to build housing. But those systems fell apart, and so we're back now to everybody in their own corner, everybody holding on to their own, and nobody willing quite to operate in the same way. So it's just it's harder to get the funding, it's harder to get the approvals, it's, you know. And there is a tension around this idea of affordable housing across Connecticut. There are many towns who 
don't want it because they're so afraid of who they think will be moving into their communities because it's affordable. And what they don't understand is that affordable housing means that your nurses and your police officers and your firefighters and your city employees can afford to live in the town that they serve. Yeah. Um, But there's a real distinction between affordable and deeply affordable. So if we're talking about solving homelessness, we must change that conversation and talk about deeply affordable for people who, you know, are way less than 80% or 60% of area median income. You know, no, that's not serving the most people who who are becoming more and more desperate because of the now the rising cost of real estate across the country. Right. And so this is, um, you know, earlier you mentioned that um, your community itself, New Haven, uh, and, and you attributed part of it to having Yale right there. And you use the language liberal, is more liberal. And, and it seems that it might be more oriented towards sharing. Um, but I'm not sure if that's the correct word for it. It seems when it gets to policy, it's um, do we want to make sure everyone is taken care of, which then bridges back, for me, into your conversations there at the Divinity School. You know, what is our moral and ethical and, and spiritual understanding of our relation with each other? Do we want to look after that and, in order to do that, share which is sharing from those who have more to those who have less. Um, that gets called liberal. But I'm, you know, I'm curious about how you and your students talk about that in the Divinity School. Hmm. Yeah, we should go sit in on an ethics class and hear what our professors are talking about. Um, I'm not sure that they cast it in terms of sharing or if they cast it in terms of our responsibility to care for one another and to care for the earth. And so how that gets played out is might not be sharing, but it is absolutely making way for people to flourish, not just live or exist, but to really flourish. And so how do we do that? You know, what are we sharing? And I'll put back to you that question is, what are we sharing or what are we demanding from Um, the government that they contribute toward alleviating homelessness, what it would be demand of the government and the powers of be to work toward environmental justice and, and, and solutions to the climate disaster that we're living in. Um, I think that's the issue and, and how do we make those demands and how do we organize our communities to join in that effort? to find those solutions, you know. So, you know, the Divinity School graduates people who go into church work. And I think our job is to equip those folks to, un- to not only understand what's happening in the world around them, which they do, but to give them the tools to organize across those congregations to make changes in the world that we need to see happen. Um, and, and you know, they know that. They get that. It's not just about praising God on Sunday mornings, but it is about praising God every day, uh, if you're of the Christian faith, to, to you know, care for each other and care for the planet and, 
create justice across so much of what we see is mired in inequity and injustice. This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. It seems to me that the conversation gets um, all stuck in the how, that that there is an extent to which in uh, public conversation, public discourse, there is this uh, desire for and that everyone seems to have, which is to appear to be thoughtful and loving and caring, um, interested in the plight of those who are worst off. We could talk about whether or not that's so, but but that's often how people wish to appear. But then things fall apart when it gets to the how-to. And so what is our government going to do? Well, the government's not going to be able to do anything if it doesn't have a tax base. And so that's where it comes to this kind of sharing mentality. And the reason that I'm going on about this is because, you know, the full ecology work that Gary and I do um, asks that we look back at what the natural world does, since we are the natural world. And the natural world doesn't start with what is the correct ethical or moral position, but it starts with everything's connected and it would be perfectly insane not to behave in a connected and sharing way. We share everything. So I guess that would be one of the things that I'm curious about in the discussions uh, that, of which you're a part. You know, where are the minds of people who are coming through graduate school now around starting with thinking about that rather than starting with thinking about, you know, scarcity and separation and how do we attend to that problem? It seems like we always break down around the how-to. Yeah, that's a good, that is a good question. Um, so the language of interconnectedness is, is one that I use, which is probably similar to how you use sharing, that what I do affects you, what you do affects Gary, what Gary does affects Margaret, affects Wally, affects Fling, you know, it, we're all connected. We are all, there is no way around that fact that we are all connected. And does that make me responsible for my neighbor? Does that make me responsible for you? Does that make me respond? I think it makes me responsible for how I act in the world to create space for all of us, to create um, space where we can live and thrive and no one is harmed. Um, and so, and, and again, so here we go. How do we do that? Hmm. I think that's what we're trying to figure out together here. How, and, and the students are asking, okay, and, and they're asking really good questions around that. How, how do they operate in the world from their stance of their faith 
and their belief in the fact that we are interconnected or some sense of sharing as you name it, and they're really struggling with where that lives. Does it live in a church? Does it live on the streets? Does it live in the public square? How? So part of the question is where? And I think a lot of our young people are saying, I'm not so sure it belongs in the church as we know it. And so until they can recreate church and come up with something different that church means, which is another conversation, um, they're trying to sort out how, how do they get to the place where they can do the work that's fueled by their faith and their own spiritual practices that will help create a, a safer world for us all. And they do that. They're learning, you know, they're learning some basic stuff around ministry and around community organizing and those kinds of things. But I think they have to figure that out once they leave here, the how-to. And it's as important to ask the question of where and who are our partners and how do we do this together? Because they know they can't do it alone. Well, you know, Allison, I also know about you, that you were raised in West Texas. What is it? about that land, about being born and raised on that land that jumped into you to help you know, now living in Connecticut and moving through your life as it is now, helped you know who you are. That, it seems to me, as a basis of understanding that can draw attention back to how we really do come from the land. But what would your response be to that? Well, it, it's a really interesting question, and, and I appreciate you asking it. I think back to, to those days of growing up in that little bitty town and kind of on the verge of West Texas, not really west and not really east, but kind of stuck in the middle, right on the border of Oklahoma. One of my very earliest memories of probably being in grade school, was sitting in a Volkswagen Beetle, not mine, not my parents, but Laura Coward's mother, who was bringing me home from school or from a play date or something, I don't know. Laura and her mom were in the front seat and I was in the back and we had to sit in my driveway because a dust storm blew through and we couldn't get out of the car. Now, I don't know if you've ever sat through a dust storm before, but I would have been picked up and blown across the street had I gotten out of the car. Nobody wanted to open the door because the car would then be full of dirt and yuck. I had, a, I had a poem glued to my refrigerator for the longest time about that same kind of sense of living in this dry, barren, dusty, dirty land that was so magnificent and so beautiful because it was so wide open. And what I miss most about that part of the country is uh, whatever highway it was, driving out toward El Paso where all that space opened up. Beautiful. And it was the most freeing, absolutely freeing experience to drive through that openness. It scares some people They'll come back and say, I was terrified. I've never been in such open space. I was absolutely terrified. What are you scared of there? What's the fear that, you know, is it that freedom? What is it that scares you so much? So being up here in this very crowded kind of New England where, you know, there's just, I have to go to the ocean to get that sense of 
kind of that wide open space and, and visualize that. So, but even so, so all that to say, I never felt completely connected to the, to the earth, right? And it's interesting because my dad and his dad were farmers for years. I don't know if you ever knew this, but they were cotton farmers um, until, I guess, until the 50s. Well, even into the 60s, because we had a little bit of land left, and I remember going out to see the cotton fields. So it's somewhere in my DNA, although not really practiced as much as a kid when I was growing up. Uh, that's a whole way, long way around your question. Well, it's beautiful. I, I, you may not know that I lived for five years from first grade to fifth grade, I think, in uh, Sweetwater. Sweetwater, Texas, very much like Wichita Falls, Texas, is just... I remember going out to play in the sandstorms because it was something... We'd see the big red dust coming in. It was something different. And then our mom would call us for dinner and stand out on the back and spray us all off when we came in the house. Um, (laughs) So, so yeah, I know. And, And it is an interesting question. I was curious how you would answer because it seems like such a desolate place, and yet there is adventure and wild nature to be found in those places, too. Well, there's nothing like growing up in Texas in Tornado Alley, which is Wichita Falls is in the middle of Tornado Alley, and so that connection to those, the wildness of creation was vivid for me because we would stand out and watch tornadoes come through and then we'd go clean up after they devastated big swaths of our community, which happened all the time. And so I think I learned early on to, to A, be terrified of those big storms. I'd also have a deep respect for what happens around me with this planet because it's unpredictable. And, you know, at any moment it can change just like that. Yeah, I think we talk in the book about this idea that came to me way back, um, you know, in some class. Um, and then I used every class after that <laughs> um, of functional humility. That there is, and, and it, it, it ties into what we were writing about in full ecology. That, that, and then the other, another language that we've learned, we borrowed from um, recovery groups, and that is r- being right-sized. So there is something about driving on a highway and having the whole world open up in front of you, headed south from, from west central Texas. Something about standing and watching a tornado over which you and the president and, you know, nobody in Russia, nobody anywhere has any say. There is no Oz. Uh-uh. This is just going to have to come through and work its way out. These are things that we learn about the natural world that we could stand to learn some about how we interact with each other also. Um, not sure exactly what that is, but I do think that our, our turning to um, our right size as nature and nature can help with a lot of these things. So I am curious about, you know, this, then this bridge, all of us bring a childhood, all of us bring engagement with the natural world to some extent, um, and then we come forward into our lives. 
So I'll tell you a quick story about, um, so I'm not clergy, never was ordained. Um, my my own practice is as a Buddhist. And, um, and so that notion of interconnectedness is really front and center in that practice. But I'm here in this divinity school because I'm, I'm eager to help students understand and want to <laughs> make the world a better place, right? I mean, that's what I hope all their internships are about. I like for them to go out and do service in the world and, and find ways that they can help change. So two summers ago, I had a student go down to Baltimore to a congregation called Still Meadow. Um, and I didn't know anything about it. He found it through the School of the Environment up here, which is just down the street. And a lot of students here do joint degrees between Divinity and School of the Environment. There is really a connection there. So he is a joint degree student, and he's down there in Baltimore with Still Meadow. And, and I got to know the program a little bit, just a little bit. You know, I, I, did, I didn't get down there to visit. This is during COVID, but he's down there, and yeah. So the pastor that is the, is the minister at Still Meadow was up here in the fall, and we got to meet with him and get to know him a little bit, and we invited him up there this spring to do an event with a program we call Reimagining Church, which is exactly what it sounds like. We are helping congregations to reimagine what ministry might be for them. So Pastor Michael gets called to this congregation he and his wife moved there from California where they'd been for 25 or 30 years. He shows up and across the street from his building are 10 acres of land, wooded land, that the church owns. Wow. Okay. What does he do with this? So he spent, he spent a couple of months kind of getting to know the congregation, letting the congregation get to know the two of them. And then he started to make connections with other people in his community about this land and what could be done with it instead of just letting it sit there. So he engaged with community members who said to him, you know, that's Dehud and you don't go into Hood because you don't know what's in there. I get that. You don't want to walk into a wooded space. You don't know what's there. Lord knows. But then he started to hear some different stories about you know, this land is really important and there are 67 different kinds of trees in here and all kinds of undergrowth. So he started to learn about the environment of Dehud and what does that mean and what's living there and what can they help protect and how can they use this as part of their ministry out of this congregation. And so now, fast forward several years later, he is connected to uh, the School of the Environment here. He's, collect, he's connected to uh, federal agencies, over, you know, the environmental agencies, and he's created in that 10 acres of land a peace park where he's got kids programs running all summer long where they come in and learn how to protect the environment, how to work in this land. He's got now food growing so they can offer um, uh, like a farmer's market, a food pantry, um, and he takes interns. And this is part of what the church has embraced as its work in the world. Isn't that, I mean, that's beautiful. That's what we need to be doing, right? Not everybody's, not every congregation is going to have 10 acres land, but a lot of them do. Um, so what do we do with that? Do we 
create peace parks? Do we grow forests? Do we, do we add housing to that three acres of land that a congregation owns that nobody's doing anything? What, how do we use the resources that we have to address the growing needs of our community? What a wonderful story. Well, okay, I have one last question before we wrap up. From where you sit and from these things that we've talked about today, and what would you suggest to the listeners for um, ways to support themselves as we all move forward together in uh, addressing climate breakdown and working toward climate repair? Do you have anything that you would suggest to folks? Mm. So many things. How much time do we have? Um, you know, get involved in your community efforts. Don't think that you're in this alone because we're all, we're, how many times can we say this, Mary? We're all in this together. What you do affects me. What I do affects you. So partner with other folks in your neighborhood. Start there. Know what your neighbors are doing. Know kind of how they're treating the land. Um, take stock of what you're doing and and how you use the resources that you have at your disposal. Think about what changes you want to make that will have even the tiniest impact, but they all add up. If we all drove electric vehicles, think of what the change that would create on the planet. But then, you know, go beyond that and get involved in local politics. As much as I, you know, it's important. We talk about policy change earlier. If our politicians don't hear from us and don't hear that we are absolutely committed to saving the planet and demanding action, they're not going to pay attention because other voices will rise up and get and, and get their attention when we so desperately need it. So get involved. Um, listen to Mary and Gary and follow what's happening there as well as other folks. You know, if you want to get involved in activist groups, look what Bill McKibben is doing with us elders who really want to get involved. He's got, you know, he's got some activism for old folks. So find where your niche is and and speak up. You worried about where your children are going to live in 30 years, where your grandchildren are going to live? Speak up. Get active. Don't Don't despair or don't just despair. But do what you can do from your side to, to make change. That's, that's what we're called to do is, is get out there and be the change. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being and part of this conversation and part of how it looks from here. Um, I really am happy you got to be here. Thanks, Allison. Learn more about Allison Cunningham by taking a look at the articles linked in the show notes. Following on Allison's suggestions, keep an eye out for how you can become more involved in community initiatives and public policy that respond to the needs of people and land near you. If you're already involved, invite more people into being part of the solutions. During our conversation, I referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, authored by me and Gary Ferguson, and available in bookstores everywhere. 
And now, before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the Systems Zoo. How It Looks From Here was produced by me, Mary Claire, editing by Gary Ferguson, music by Gary Ferguson, and other artists noted in the show notes. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch. Mm-hmm.